0: Hey, it's Vadim, re-recording the intro because of an interesting thing. I had um, a mismatched sample rate on my uh, preamp, which has a digital converter in it. If you're confused about that, go back to episode two, where we talk about what that means. But I had a, a different sample rate on my converter than I did on my interface, and Wow, it sounded awful. I got this crackly, clicky stuff. And a uh, good lesson there to always check yourself before you wreck yourself on <laughs> sample rate. Anyway, anyway, uh, yes, check out our shiny new website if you haven't already. You can go to DIYRecordingGuys.com. You can search for episodes by topic there. You can also browse episodes by category. And you can get to show notes. You can just type in that website, diyrecordingguys.com forward slash the episode number, and you will see show notes, and those show notes are slowly being expanded into kind of like mini blog articles. This week is for all you bass players who felt neglected over the last two weeks when I did a deep dive into recording heavy guitars. This week is Ben's deep dive on all things related to bass tone. And then similarly to what we did for guitars, the next week will be about how to actually record whatever bass tone Ben came up with. So we get into a lot of things. I actually learned a lot from Ben in this episode. You know, I I play bass occasionally in the studio on sessions or on my own songs, but definitely lack some knowledge on this topic. And uh, I took a lot away from it. We get into why technique is even more important for tone on bass than it is on guitar. Uh, We get into fingerstyle versus picking as a technique. We talk about how using a pick is actually a little bit like using a compressor, which is maybe counterintuitive. We talk about different bass designs and how they affect tone. Uh, Ben gets into some different sounds associated with some different manufacturers. Ben talks about three different types of bass distortion and what they do, and I found this very helpful uh, as a characterization or a way to think about uh, different types of bass distortion. He talks about the importance of a compressor in a bass signal chain, why it's so much more important than for guitar. Then we get into amps. We talk about tube amps versus solid-state amps. Uh, We talk about how much power your amp actually needs. As you'll hear, Ben has some really like nuclear warfare rated amps, which is crazy. And then finally, Ben has a shocking conclusion, which is going to lead into next week's episode, uh, where he actually plays samples of the uh, tones he recorded. He tried a lot of different mic techniques, similarly to what I did in last week's episode. And he comes to a bit of a shocking conclusion, which he will reveal at the end of this episode. As always, if you have any comments or questions, you can reach out. You can um, get me at Vadim at com. Ben is at Ben at com. We hope to hear from you. Cheers. You're listening to the DIY Recording Guys podcast, your one-stop information source for DIY music production with your hosts, Vadim Karaz and Benjamin Hall.
1: Okay, welcome again to another episode of the DIY Recording Guys. As always, I'm your host Benjamin Hall from Dreamlot Studio, and I'm Vadim from Calm Frog Recording.
0: It's been a while, Ben. I feel like I it's been a while since I've seen your shining face. It, dude, it's been forever. So weird. I don't know what happened. The hurricane, the pandemic, uh the yeah. whole slew of things tripping us up. A lot
1: of things. <laughs> I went out to see the in-laws recently. That was the Oh, that's right thing. Yeah. Yeah. I forgot about that. Yeah.
0: It's like a, like a mini vacation. You guys actually flew out there,
1: right? Yeah. So I have to tell you about traveling during COVID because it's weird. Yes.
0: Tell me. I'm I'm very interested.
1: It's weird because I, I was actually really impressed with airport security and TSA because you have an, an extra level of delay with just everybody having to wear masks all the time. And it actually sped up the boarding process, I feel like. Although, I guess there's less people flying. The way they're doing things now, I don't know how other airlines do it, but I mostly fly Delta when I do fly. And before, they would always have the, like all the special gems they, they board first. You know, the medallion and the diamond members and all, all the different ones. They all board first, and then they make all the people. It's like the walk of shame. So all the, all the really privileged people or all the people that have money, they get to sit in their seats and watch and heckle. I'm, I'm guessing that's what they're doing in, the, in their heads. They get to heckle everybody else <laughs> as they walk by them to their seats, you know, and just the economy seating. But now with COVID, they're boarding things in opposite order, which makes so much more sense to me. Why would you want to get on a plane and then sit there and wait for everybody else to, like, bump by you and get on it. And, like, you're already sitting there for four hours anyways if you're flying from the east to west coast.
0: Yeah, that's true. I, I did never understand that rush to to board. But I will tell you, Ben, that I am one of the gems because— Are you a gem? I used to, <laughs> yes, yes, I am. I used to fly so much for work. Oh, really? That I got some kind of crazy status with— um, Star Alliance to the point where like I can use the lounges and stuff. So like Oh, I'm so jealous. I am one of the people and I can confirm that I do heckle everybody in my head. <laughs> <laughs> I just I have a smug half smirk on my face as I'm boarding and you know, eating my croissant. <laughs>
1: You never make eye contact with people. You just look at them out of the corner of your eye and then look back yeah, while you're reading you your paper. Yeah.
0: I'm wearing I'm wearing sunglasses, actually. I used to wear sunglasses 100% of the time. <laughs> Did you in really? And a, f- and a fedora. No, no, not. <laughs> oh, my gosh.
1: <laughs> so funny. But anyways, it was, it was just nice to get out. And um, I don't know about you. I was actually going to post this in the group, and I might sometime later this week or next week. But sometimes I like to get away from the art that we typically do just to get inspired. And... There's nothing like just kind of looking at nature and thinking about how that makes me feel as far as the sounds go and then maybe want to reproduce that on guitar, how a sunrise made me feel type of a thing. Do you ever do stuff like that? Absolutely.
0: I I had the same thought recently where it's like, inspiration for music doesn't come from music it comes from things outside of music right and that's yeah nature is uh actually there's a subreddit called nature is metal i think and it's just like <laughs> animals eating each other and stuff if i'm not mistaken <laughs> oh my gosh <laughs> not not for the faint of heart no what are we talking about man you wrote your magnum opus as you described it in
1: your text message to me what's it about so we're going to be like we did back in way way back in episode thirteen, uh, where we did a guitar tone deep dive. We're going to do the bass version of that, and I guess in my head I thought this is just going to be a little tag on top of what we've already talked about with guitar, because you know what is bass but a guitar with two less strings, really? So, <laughs> oh my god, I never thought I <laughs> never thought I'd hear the day. <laughs> right i mean that's the that's the like criticism that guitar players give like bass players all the time but you know like all in good fun okay 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 uh what i came back with was like a five pages worth of single space notes all on dialing (laughs) all on dialing in bass tone and there's a lot to be said you know uh like a guitar it's very similar in it's functionality and and kind of the way that it works and even how you dial in tone but Um, There's also some very unique and different things that uh, you're trying to get out of a bass guitar, uh, especially in the context of a mix or in a song that's different as opposed to getting and dialing in your guitar tone. So I just wanted to talk about that. I love your notes on this. I I can't wait to get into it. But before we even do that, maybe
0: explain, as I know we had a question in our Facebook group today when we were just uh, uh, chatting about this with people. There was a question that came up about, you know, what is what do we even mean when we say
1: dialing in tone? So maybe talk about that concept a little bit. That's a great question, by the way, because sometimes I get so caught up in the jargon that I forget that... I know, that, me too, me too. Yeah, I forget that that might be foreign to some people, but like the person who commented said, you know, is are we talking about turning knobs? Essentially, yeah, that's where it begins. That's what we're talking about is how are we turning the equalizer on the... Uh, the preamp of our pickups on our bass to dial, air quotes, dial in tone? How are we turning the knobs on our pedals or our amplifiers to dial in tone? How are we turning the gain knobs and the EQs and the compressor knobs on our interfaces to dial in the tone that we want? But it goes so much farther than that. I I think that's kind of where that idea comes from is turning a dial dial. That's what you mean by dialing mm. in or maybe even from old school TVs where you turn the dial to dial in a channel that's where that idea yes. tone comes from um but as we'll talk about in the notes today it's that's only a small part of what dialing in a tone means because it goes to everything from uh your playing style to the to the instrument that you're playing and the wood that it's made out of or other types of materials and th- I mean the the possibilities are just endless. Sure, and that's why it's such a
0: fun journey. But I think you, you, you hit the nail on the head, which is that broadly speaking, your tone ultimately is the sound that people are hearing that's coming out of the speakers. And when we talk about dialing it in, we talk about all of the different levers, quote-unquote, all the different things we can affect in the chain up to that, which you mentioned. You know, are you using a pick or is it finger style? All the literal dials and knobs, all the things you can affect to get to that final tone that you want that's what we talk about is that process of getting the final s-
1: sound you're looking for one interesting thing that i want to bring up is that as primarily a bass player so i jumped right into learning bass whereas i feel like a lot of people even bass players they start out as guitar players mm, and sure. then they move over to bass or oh we already have you know you're the third guitar player and oh we already have two guitar players in the band can you play bass instead like that happens so yes, much yeah um, so I think maybe differently than somebody who had started with guitar, uh, as a bass player, I don't think we think about tone as much as guitar players do. Really? At least in the same way. Like to me, at least whenever I'm learning and maybe I'm getting ahead of myself here a little bit, cause I did want to talk about my tone journey a little bit and maybe I'll save mm-hmm. that for later. But really for me, tone was more about how I was playing and kind of figuring out stylistically what my playing was going to be more than the bass that I had or the amp I was playing through. So that definitely influenced my journey a lot where I felt like tone to me was using my fingers to try to get whatever, to to reproduce whatever I was hearing on the radio more than using Mm. effects or gear in particular. And I think that it really served me well. Not that, not that you can only do that and ignore everything else, but I think it made me realize how important um, just figuring out your playing style and honing just the touch. Like your hands on the instrument make a huge influence in what your tone sounds like.
0: Yes, and do you think, do you think that's a function? I, I agree with you, by the way. For some reason, I'm, my feeling is that technique plays an even bigger role on bass than it does on guitar. So I, that's kind of my question for you: Is do you think it's a function of the instrument and how it's used in modern music, or do you think it's a function of kind of you as a musician? Uh, I
1: think that well, I think traditionally, because I'm a little bit older. <laughs> so ah, <Yeah>, come on, <laughs> <laughs> a little bit older than these than these young guns coming up. Um, okay, and okay. When I was growing up. <laughs> we didn't have as much access to the internet and gear rundowns. Like, now they're everywhere. Now you know what, like, everybody is playing and playing through. But I can remember back in the day where you would get on blogs where they would have these really terrible photos taken from people in the crowd of, like, what is on that guy's pedal board? Trying to figure out what people are playing through. Can you relate to this? Yeah.
0: Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. (laughs) So I feel like back in the day even more so for bass players, uh, there was a lot of guys just kind of plugging their bass straight into an amp, and that was their signal chain. Not everybody, but Mm. I think that was a lot more common back in the day than it even is now. Like, now it's a lot more acceptable, especially with how even metal has gotten even more aggressive, where the bass guitar is taking on a more guitar-like role and Mm -hmm. so we're processing bass guitar a lot more than we ever did before and adding distortion and compression and just different interesting things to it so I think it's a nature of just kind of the the history of the instrument interesting which was kind of the way that I learned too so that's why I wanted to bring that up at the beginning because I think maybe a 16 or a 20 year old that wants to pick up bass is if they go on the internet to kind of learn, you know, what kind of gear do i need to buy to get the tone i want, you're going to be overwhelmed with people talking about distortion pedals and compressors and overdrives mm. and limiters and everything else, but i do think it's important to take a step back and just kind of think about and and develop or or get a sense of what are my fingers doing to the tone of just Mm. playing my bass, going through an amp?
0: Yeah, I think you're right. So yeah, basically you're saying you were in a situation where, because even the information wasn't available, you were forced to try to replicate the sounds you heard through the only tools you had, which was your hands and your playing style. And so you kind of learned how to adapt. Are there times when you're recording bass, like, are you always playing finger style or are there applications where you would use a pick?
1: Yeah, that's a good, quest- that's a good question. Um, so when I learned, I was 100% finger style, but mm-hmm. over the years, I started playing more and more with a pick, and I realized that the pick just imparts such a different tone than fingers do. So it is totally stylistically and tone related when I choose to use a pick or not.
0: Gotcha. I don't want to jump ahead if that's part of your discussion. No, that's But totally I'm always curious about that. Okay.
1: Yeah, so I think there are some guys out there that, Can only play with a pick, and that's fine. And there's some guys out there that can only play finger style, and that's fine too, because you can kind of round out your tone to make a pick sound more like fingers, and you can make fingers sound more aggressive with EQ and other things. So it sounds more Mm -hmm. like a pick. So it's not like you have to do one or the other, but I just found for myself that um, I wanted to learn both techniques just in case I ever needed them in whatever scenario I found myself in.
0: Yeah, I know. And I like for for my projects, because I am a guitar player, my my finger playing is, is terrible on bass. So what I did was, um, uh, I mean, if it's a if it's a softer, like if it's a if it's a song that needs a rounder tone, I bought these like really thick rubber picks hmm. and uh, and these like fuzzy picks that kind of really have a dull sound, almost like finger style. But I did that purely because I couldn't play the parts I wanted to play <laughs> with my fingers. So it was more like making up for a deficiency in my playing.
1: Yeah. It's not quite exactly the same, but like you said, there are workarounds if you can't get the, because it takes a long time to get the finger style down. It's a very unique motion. You're kind of dragging the meaty fleshy part of the pads of your fingers across the string in a way. So it's not like a clean strike that a pick would have. You're kind of, mm, yeah, Pulling on it and the flesh of your finger imparts so much character and tone in and of itself. So it is yeah. like an interesting and, and different and weird technique, but I think those kind of things shine through especially if you hear somebody like Jaco Pistorius, who's a great jazz bass player, and just all yep. the feeling just comes from his fingers. It's a hundred percent right there. Mm. Interesting. And what are you playing? What are you playing in the fell? Um, that's, that's all slap bass pretty much. Slap bass and and finger style, just from the nature of what it is. I've tried to, there are a couple lines in there that would make sense to do with a pick just because they're so fast, but, um, to switch from slap to pick style and then back again, it just kind of doesn't make too much sense. Yeah. Yeah, Good question though. Okay. Cool. All right, man. Well, where do you want to start with this? With this beast? yeah let's let's um let's start from the top so i I kind of want to talk about um just like we did back in episode thirteen about when we were talking about dialing in guitar tone let's talk about where does tone come from in the first place and you kind of stole my thunder a little bit but that's all great because that's the first <laughs> thing I wanted to talk about you know like okay okay uh it's kind of like how we talked about with our signal chain um in many episodes before where kind of the things that Happen first in the chain are more important than the things that happen Down the road a little bit and there are a yep. c- couple caveats to this, but I totally think the number one important thing uh, When it comes to tone is just realizing that your fingers or pick are uh, They have the biggest effect on tone whenever you're playing because even as a bass player or a guitar player, just playing more aggressively outputs more volume so you can overdrive your tone just in that way. It has a huge effect. Sure. Yeah, so it's, it's a big deal. Um, we talked about finger style a lot, so let's talk about picks a little bit more. Uh, the, the gauge of the pick actually affects the tone a lot. Um, I prefer medium to heavy gauge. Uh, I just don't like things that are too heavy on bass because I kind of like how Nolly talks about the lighter picks can kind of give you a natural compression.
0: Yeah, I love that. So what that is is, uh, yeah, when you when you're picking hard with a pick that's quote unquote lighter, which I'll I'll ask you about that in a minute, but basically because the pick has some like springiness to it, it actually kind of acts like a compressor because it. Uh, if you're picking really hard, the pick will give the same amount each time, and it helps you control your dynamics a bit. So I wanted to ask you this question because I know I had heard the same. I had heard Nolly say the same thing, and I remember you telling me that when he's talking about a quote-unquote light pick, it's still pretty freaking heavy. So give us an idea here, like because uh, you know I'm familiar with people, may be familiar with guitar picks, medium heavy guitar picks. How do the the pick gauge for bass differ? Are pick, are bass gauges heavier to begin
1: with than guitar pick gauges? Um, there's, I don't think there's too many companies out there making, like, bass picks, so... Okay. I think they're kind of the same all around, like, you won't see, like, bass gauges or whatnot. Okay, just, so,
0: like, what do you consider, like, a heavy gauge for, or, like, a medium-heavy gauge for bass that you would use?
1: Um, medium-heavy would probably be, like, a a 0.8 or a 0.9 millimeter. Okay, so about the same as a guitar, yeah. Yeah, I, I think that kind of what I prefer to play is a 0.7. So it get, has enough give, but if you go any lighter than that, you're going to break a lot of picks.
0: <laughs> I'm looking at, I use, a, actually, I use a 0.
1: 0.86 for guitar. <laughs> that's nice. You know what's funny? If, if, I'm heavy, playing, yeah. if I'm playing leads on guitar, I use a heavier, I like to use a heavier pick than I do on bass. And I think that's it's kind more of common. Control, right? More control, and when you want to really hit a note, it's immediate. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? And you don't need that as much on bass. Like I used to think that uh, when I first was playing or learning pick style on bass, I thought, oh, I need to just go as heavy as I possibly can so that the pick isn't weak but or flimsy or whatever. But I realized it's it's all really about control and I just didn't have control of my technique yet. So after learning like kind of, how playing with a pick feels, I kind of preferred to back off the gauge a little bit. So interesting. Yeah, it, really, it doesn't matter. It's just whatever feels good to you. Um, but it does change. It does change the tone of the bass itself. You know, based on what your um, what your gauge is. What what I like to do on
0: guitar actually is I did I did this recently is um, when I'm done when you're trying to talk about this whole process when you get to the end and you're kind of happy with the tone you have then it's a cool idea to like try a bunch of different picks and see what the subtle differences are. And I've even done this. I did this. I don't know if it makes a difference or not, but I've used like one pick gauge to track like the right channel guitars and then a different pick gauge to track the left channel. Huh. Yeah, <laughs> just just to see what that would do. Um, but yeah, anyway, go,
1: go on. No, that's interesting. A, a little though. aside. Yeah, that's an interesting idea, though. I like it.
0: Just to get like a little difference between the two sides, you know?
1: Yeah, yeah. So this is the same with, um, I don't know, I've never really thought about this when it comes to guitar because I kind of just always strike my guitar strings in the same position, but on bass, I'll vary where I'm plucking the strings in relation mm. to the pickup. Uh, like if I want a more warm rounded tone, I'll pluck closer to where the neck connects to the body of the guitar because it's warmer up there. And if I want something that's maybe more thin sounding um, or funky, I'll play a lot closer to the bridge. So mm. the location of where you're striking the string makes a big difference too. Wow, okay. I don't know if you, have you do guitar players think about that or do you pretty much wanna play right over top of where the pickups are?
0: I mean, I definitely can, I, I know what you're saying because if you pick really close to the bridge, you do get like a really crystal-y kind of thin, bright sound. I'm not a good enough guitar player to like care about those subtleties, (laughs) but I don't want to speak for all guitar players because I'm sure there are some out there that think about it. Especially on acoustic instruments, I could see that. you know. Yeah,
1: yeah, for sure. Just something to keep in mind. Um, Okay, so that's the first thing. So let's talk about the second thing where tone comes from. And this is a really huge deal for me personally as a player because, so talking about a little bit my tone journey, I started out as a drummer first. And then I picked up bass because I thought it would make my drumming better by learning a second instrument. Hmm. Um, But by going in that order, I definitely still feel like I play bass like a drummer would play bass. And so from, uh, from the very beginning when I was learning, part of my learning process was either being influenced by or just trying to figure out intervals. So... Baselines as far as uh, intervals from the root notes, like what could I play that would um, that would sound good as a riff? I guess in in the context of if there is a repeating chord progression, what intervals can I play around and sound cool? Um, but not right. only just the intervals, but also the rhythms were a big deal to me as well, and I feel like that plays a big deal into this idea of tone too like it's not just the sound of the instrument but there's a lot of bass players out there that i could instantly tell you who the bass player is even if they were on a completely foreign rig or like a toy guitar just based on Mm. the riffs that they're playing okay and i have a few examples of these um that i wanted to bring up to, to give you guys examples so there's people like Flea. I think his bass lines are so recognizable, and that's why, and he's the bass player from the Red Hot Chili Peppers, if you haven't heard of Flea before, which I would be amazed, but I guess, <laughs> I guess they're all getting older, so maybe the younger generation has it yet. <laughs> um, but I think the reason why he keeps showing up on the l- list of best bass players, I don't think it's because he's actually the best, but I think that he plays very unique intervals and rhythms so that's one. Um, next one is Les Claypool. He's just kind of his own animal. He just does. Oh my god! Yeah. There's nobody that sounds like Les, and yeah, go go check out Primus. Interesting stuff. Not For not sure. the weird music, but but interesting stuff. Mm-hmm. <laughs> People like Geddy Lee, a very unique bass player. Jaco Pastorius, probably, arguably the best bass player ever. Victor Wooten, who can pretty much play whatever he wants, anything. <laughs> And um a, maybe a little known one, James Jamerson, but he played on all the Motown records. So mm. anything from that era, era is basically his bass lines. And I just think it's interesting how even seeing the tablature and, and playing, like you just kind of know just from seeing what they're doing that it's these certain players just based on what they're doing rhythmically and intervally. Okay, so then yeah, the next thing that we're going on to comes down to the base construction itself of your in- of your instrument. So different types of woods and materials change the tone drastically. Now, I'm not a wood buff whenever it comes to knowing what all bases are made out of, but I know that the denser the wood, the more sustain and the darker the tone that you typically get. Also, maple tends to be a lot brighter than rosewood when you're talking about That's even on the necks of guitars and basses. I've noticed that I like to play maple necks a lot more than I like rosewood, even though I think rosewood looks prettier. What else? An interesting thing too is you can decide if you want a bolt-on neck or a neck through design. So a bolt-on is your neck is a separate piece from the body. Whereas a neck through design is the neck goes the whole length of the body. And... There are some trade-offs whenever it comes to having a neck-through design. Um, They're not as punchy as a bolt-on. So I prefer having a bolt-on design. But if you want something that has more sustain, you definitely want a neck-through type of base. There's even bases out there that have some exotic materials. Like Modulus was really popular for a while uh, because they were making their necks out of carbon fiber. And Mm. it had... It had the wildest sound. I played one before and they're just super aggressive and bright just because of the neck was made of out of carbon fiber. Interesting. And so
0: is that in that case, is it bolt on? Obviously, I guess. Or yeah. It
1: it's it's bolt on and it doesn't come with truss rods because the neck never moves.
0: Oh my God. Cause it's so stiff already.
1: Yeah. It never, and it never changes with the weather.
0: That's amazing. It's crazy. That's
1: really interesting. Yeah.
0: I know on, that's very similar to what you described to, to guitars. On guitars, you have basically three types of necks. There's a bolt-on. There's something called a set neck, which is like what Gibsons have, and that is basically a glued joint. Hmm. And then there's neck through. But neck through, I used to think neck through meant that it was the whole guitar was made out of a single piece of wood, but that would be crazy expensive. What it actually yeah. means is that, like you said, the uh, the neck goes all the way through kind of – the body of the guitar, but then there's two like wings that are glued on to the side of that, uh, the main body to make the rest of the body. So I assume it's the same for uh, for basses.
1: Yeah. And you're exactly right because think about that. If it was the whole body, you would have to have a tree that was that yeah. thick. So more expensive. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So moving on, this is partially under the construction of the bass, but I, I separated it out because it, um, I mean, they're, they're a whole animal in and of itself. And forgive me, I don't know too much about this, uh, but pickups can have a huge effect on your sound. Um, whether they're single coil or humbucker, active or passive, and there's a whole bunch of different styles of of pickups too. Some that come with their own preamps that do interesting things or even add a distortion circuit or a gain circuit to your tone. Uh, but they're... There's so many different kinds of ones, and like I said, forgive me, I don't have a lot of...
0: Well, maybe just, just talk about in your in your playing, in your experience, because uh, your bass has two pickups, doesn't it? Or does it only have
1: one? It only has one. I prefer... Well, it's a single humbucker is the way that they that's work.
0: That's right. Okay, that's right. And actually... And it's kind of like w- located, it's kind of like... Where's the lo- location between the neck joint and the bridge? Is it like roughly halfway, or...?
1: it's It's about one third of the way towards the neck away from the bridge. So it's closer to the okay. bridge than the neck and closer to the bridge. Okay. Yeah. And that's one of the reasons why me personally, I gravitated towards playing the Ernie Ball Ernie Ball style basses is because I think their pickup is in the most ideal position for playing. And I like to, I like to rest my thumb on the pickup whenever I'm playing finger style. And that's like the most ideal to place to play. It drives me crazy whenever I play other bases where I think that they purposely split the difference with the pickups um, just on either side of that. And I almost need like to glue another piece of wood, like in between <laughs> the, the pickups, which they do make that kind of a thing to, to have like a resting position for your finger. Joe Golden's ears are are burning right now. You you talk
0: about gluing pieces of wood onto your.
1: (laughs) Oh yeah, but it's just it's a pet peeve of mine to not have that pickup in like the ideal location. And I I mean, it's even interesting too that like I prefer—I couldn't even tell you why—but I just prefer the sound of a single humbucker versus a double humbucker setup. And Mm. I know that they're like really popular out there, but I just like the way that they look and sound a lot better, like a single humbucker versus that dual setup or even single pickups. That's pretty much all I had to say on pickups. I don't know if you wanted to add anything. I feel like guitar guitarists always are thinking about like hot-rodding their instruments way more than bass players are. I'm thinking about it right now. I, I think about it all day, every day.
0: <laughs> yeah, no, it's probably good for a, for a different episode. We'll keep keep going here with the bass stuff.
1: That's so funny to me because like I feel like Anytime I'm around guitar players, like all they want to talk about is just like what pickups they swapped out into their <laughs> <laughs> Yeah.
0: Yeah, it's, I don't know. It's just a thing. I've never done it, but I, I've been really curious lately. And I'm I, I keep I'll tell you what, there's a I'm not gonna name the manufacturer, but probably once a week I'll go on their website and like customize my pickups that I want and add them to my shopping cart. And I haven't
1: I haven't pressed the purchase button yet, but I'm getting close. <laughs> just something to note out there if you're if you like the way that your bass feels and plays but maybe not completely happy with the way it sounds mm-hmm. maybe try changing the pickups in it it's a good idea yeah. at least all right so we talked a little bit about this um already but i don't know about guitar so much but i know for bass in particular like when i think of a manufacturer i think of distinctly different tones if I were to say Fender Jazz Bass, like I can think of specific albums and tones that that, or artists that that bass goes with. Can you give me one? Like give me one that's like a classic Fender Jazz Bass sound. Um, So two that come to mind are Timmy C. I I forget what his last name is, but the bass player from Rage Against the Machine. He plays a jazz bass. Yeah.
0: Comerford, yeah, Tim Comerford.
1: Yeah. Flea, at earlier in their career, played a jazz bass on some Red Hot Chili Pepper albums. Also, probably the most recognizable, Getty Lee from Rush. Okay. Yeah, so there's that. Also another Fender. So we have a Fender P bass. I just think of all the pop punk records I've ever heard. It's hmm. pretty much P bass straight across the board. Um, But going on from there, uh, we've got Ernie Ball Stingray, like what I play. I would say that tone is pretty much like full spectrum, maybe a little bit brighter on top, like maybe a little bit scooped. So nice low end and nice high end with a little bit of scoop mid-range. Warwick Warwick basses are really interesting to me because they have just a very distinctive woody, like subby deep tone to them. So you've got Peanut from 311. He plays a Warwick. Uh, the early Incubus albums, their original bass player, he had a Warwick. Hmm uh the bass player from pod he plays a warwick and they all sound the same they have that tone to them it's just like it sounds like he's beating on like a big log that's the only way i can describe (laughs) it (laughs) it just has that tone to it um and then maybe for more modern day guys um dingwall basses i've seen them all over the place now but those are like the new hot rod bass guitars made popular by Probably Nolly and Periphery.
0: I've heard Nolly describe that as like the bass that was made for like a modern metal sound. It was, It's kind of, I guess that's that was his feeling on it anyway. And I think, yeah, that's the bass he chose to to use for all the Periphery stuff.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I see them out there. I haven't played one. But, I mean, just from hearing records and stuff, they sound awesome. So, mm. um, but it's just interesting how I. I'm going to look
0: pro- up a picture right now. I want to see what they look like.
1: Oh, they look amazing. They look like all of these old basses. So that's one interesting thing. Like the bass guitar, like all these designs are back from like the 60s and 70s or maybe even earlier. But like mm. bands are playing them back then. And I feel like all of them kind of look like classic cars or muscle cars. And then the Dingwall just looks like. Oh, my God. They look awesome. The sexiest, I, They look like the sexiest, like new age, slick Tesla sports car. You know what I mean? Yeah, they look awesome. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so moving on from there, uh, <laughs> strings obviously pay or play a big role in the tone of your instrument as well. And you can get traditional nickel-plated or maybe more fancier ones like steel or a higher percentage of chrome in your steel, which is what I prefer. They're also the most expensive, <laughs> but they sound the best and the brightest. Um I think a pack of 5-string Ernie Ball Slinky Cobalts are like $50. They're very oh. expensive, but they sound amazing. Yeah. So if you think about it though, if you're recording an EP or a record, I totally cuz that's forever, I totally would spend $50 to get a nice pair of strings to record with. Sure. I wouldn't play shows with them, but I would, you know, record with them. Yeah. And string gauge plays a big roll in your tone as well i prefer the lightest gauges possible but still with enough tension that they don't feel like rubber bands you get more mid-range and high-end tone out of thinner strings i think that's kind of what i'm going for because i don't want just subby round bottom end Hmm. because i don't feel like it's hard to get low end from a bass it's harder to get the articulation in your bass tone so that's kind of why I prefer the the thinner gauges, but definitely another thing to keep in mind with that too is whatever gauge you decide to uh, to go with is going to um, it's going to be related to how heavy that you play. Now I'm like a really I'm really heavy-handed whenever I play, like I'm hitting the strings so hard, um, probably harder than I should. But if you're if you have a really light touch, you can get away with thinner gauges than if you're really heavy-handed. Okay, moving on. So the next phase in our chain of bass tone is pedals. Yes, I guess we'll go with pedals here. So there's a lot of different options. Maybe I should have put pedals later in the chain. Even though they're next in the chain, they're probably not as important as the amp, but we'll just talk about pedals for now, and then uh, we'll finish up with amps and stuff like that. So I would say... If you've never tried using a compression pedal before on bass, I would recommend going out there and and trying it. Um, because I think that compression on guitars is like optional and maybe something cool you could play around with. But I would argue that with bass, it's almost a necessity. And the reason is, is that because a lot of times bass has way less if no distortion on it the um the dynamic range of the instrument is very large it's very huge so playing into a compressed a compressor is just going to help to smooth out your tone a lot more before it hits the rest of the pedals in your chain or it goes to your amp i think it just helps things in general
0: and you're that compressor you're it's not like a there's no tone splitting going on there the whole signal is going through that compressor right yep that's exactly right okay so that is that the first pedal in your chain, typically?
1: Yep. First pedal in my chain is the compressor, and it just kind of evens everything else out. Because if you think about it, if I play a really heavy note or I get excited and I want to play a note really loud, on bass, that's going to have a huge volume difference. And if I'm going into, you know, even to my amp, but into any kind of overdrive or distortion circuit, I'm going to be pumping. I'm going to be, like, boosting my volume going into that. So... Instead of that note maybe being louder, it's just going to have more distortion on it. So having a compressor just kind of helps to level things out a little bit better. It also helps with just kind of the smoothing out the low end. And I kind of had my own issues with this as like kind of a bass player playing in live bands because I wanted to be like, I wanted to be like Flea, so I wanted to play a lot of notes and be really fancy and whatever. And I noticed part of the problem was if I wasn't playing in the lower register or maybe I wasn't playing held out or a consistent bass line, I was moving around a lot or playing a lot of staccato notes, that um, the low end would kind of just fluctuate around a lot, fall out mm-hmm. and just not be there. But if you have a compressor on and set that, re- um, if it has a release toggle on it and you set it to you know, maybe not slow but somewhere between medium and fast, it just kind of helps to hold on to the notes a little bit more, and then you get a more smooth low end to kind of sit under the rest of like the instruments mm. in the band. I think it helps a lot.
0: Yeah, that that's. I think that's huge. I, I know comp- uh, bass players I talk to always talk about that. They always talk about how crucial uh, that that compression is to their tone. And I never, I just, I mean, I believe them, but I never fully understood that because it's not quite like that for guitar, especially for distorted guitar, because you already have that amp distortion is already the most extreme compressor in the yeah. history of compression, so you don't really need to think about it as much. You don't want to reduce dynamics any more than
1: that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is true. Um, and that's why for the longest time, I I never even knew about it or played through a compressor, but once I discovered it, I couldn't go back.
0: And talk about your settings again one more time. Uh, in terms of services like attack and release,
1: what are you going for there? So attack, I want to be as... Sl- The attack is slow as possible, which means I want more of that, more of the initial signal to get through without the compressor turning on. And the reason I want that is because if I'm playing hard or I'm picking hard, I want that punchiness to get through. I don't want the compressor to like, so I want the attack to be slow and the release to be set somewhere between medium fast to medium. Okay. So it's kind of, and it depends on the tempo or the style of music that you're playing. Uh, but you want it to kind of grab and hold on to those notes so that when you stop playing, it's still kind of holding on to a little bit of that note that you you stopped with. Now, we could get into a lot on overdrive and distortion and, and all that kind of stuff, so I guess I'll just touch on it briefly. And this goes into my tone journey a little bit too. So the first time I ever messed around with overdrive or distortion... Was I saw an ad in a bass player magazine, and Futility from Corn was repping his Fathead Ibanez distortion pedal, and Fat was spelled P H A T, you know, Fat. Ah, yes yeah. it was. Yes, way back in the day, and I was like, oh, that's the coolest thing ever. So. I bought it and of course in my cover band I was playing it I was playing it on every song it didn't matter if it was Brown Eyed Girl or a Weezer <laughs> song that overdrive distortion pedal was coming on in the choruses and obviously it was I barely use it anymore the only time I use it it's still on my pedal chain but the only time I use it is if um like if I just want some nasty guitar like effect it's pretty it's pretty gritty it oh it's very gritty and noisy okay. and terrible sounding and Okay, <laughs> uh, it's it's not very useful, but it did get me to start messing around with distortion on bass a little bit and seeing like what that could do with my tone or do for my tone. And one thing I'll say is like I, I guess I'll kind of divide distortion on bass up into three different categories, and we'll get into this a lot more in the second episode because it comes into play a lot more with recording than I think with just having a standard bass tone. But um, I will mention it here real quick. So the three different categories I would divide them into is like kind of natural distortion, which is like amp breakup with your gain. Uh, some amps have that built into them and other amps don't. So I will make that disclaimer. So don't just turn up your amp trying to distort it or you might blow a speaker. <laughs> but some amps are kind of like my Mesa is kind of designed. The more you turn up the gain, the more kind of harmonic distortion you you get with it so Mm -hmm. it's just kind of cool um to turn the gain up that way uh the other type and that's that's the least noticeable type of distortion that's more like extra harmonics and and thickness i would call that more so than actual audible fuzz um which leads into the second type of distortion which i would call like fuzz distortion or big muff distortion, which is like, just think of early Muse records. Um, Their bass player uses a lot of fuzz type of things, Uh, especially hysteria like that. I would probably call that like a, a big muff type of fuzz type of distortion. Mm. Um, And then the last one is more guitar, high bitey overdriven type of distortion which is kind of what I prefer, but you do have to be careful with it because you can really sap the low end of your tone on bass with that. So normally when you're talking that type of distortion, you want to blend that in with with either a DI signal or uh, if you have a pedal like I have on my Darkglass B7K, it has a blend knob on it. So I'm normally going somewhere between 40 to 60% blending in the, Uh, the clean tone with the distortion.
0: Right. So what we're talking about there, uh, in case you're not familiar with that, like a wet-dry wet knob is basically you're feeding some signal into this pedal. The pedal is doing something to it. And then this wet-dry knob lets you, or the mix knob or the blend knob, whatever you want to call it, lets you control how much of the unprocessed signal is getting through the pedal versus how much of the process signal is getting to the output. And you can have that anywhere from, I guess, 0%, which would be the pedal's not doing anything, the signal's coming in and just coming out unchanged, to 100% when like all of the signal is being completely changed by the pedal to a blend. And you're saying you're going somewhere between like 40 to 60%, right? Yeah. So you're still getting that. And I guess you're saying that you, the, the dry signal, the unprocessed signal is where the low end is coming from, and then you get the distortion, bitey stuff. From the pedal, which is very cool. Yeah, that's a, that's that's a nice, nice feature on a bass distortion pedal for sure.
1: Yeah, I feel like they need to have it. I mean, the other the other option is not the cheap option, but I I know that Muse from seeing their rig rundowns, um, he literally had like two bass rigs going at the same time, and one of them was just a clean bass rig, and the other had all of his distortions on it. And the reason Crazy. for doing that is that On bass in particular, distortion just doesn't sound good on the low frequencies, and I don't know the exact reason for it, but I would imagine it has to do with the fact that um, you're getting different notes without changing the frequency number that much, and so when you're adding those higher order harmonics, you're kind of overlapping with other uh, notes in the scale, and it just starts to sound muddy instead of nice.
0: Interesting. I, that's a really interesting way of putting it. I never thought about it that way, but it uh, totally makes sense. And yeah, yeah, th- distortion on those really not just bass, but anytime you have a bass element, even if it's like a synth, uh low frequencies are not going to sound great distorted. Things are going to get muddy and flubby and a mess.
1: Yeah. So that's something to be aware of. And it actually took me a long time to find a pedal that did bass distortion really well. Like once I found that B7K I was willing to give them however much money they asked me to <laughs> to, to own the pedal but I tried so, I've tried so many different kinds of distortion I think I tried 10 different pedals and I just wasn't happy with any of them and I think it it really came down to that issue was that the distortion sounded good but the low end just sounded mm. like it wasn't there like it wasn't there at all so that's something that's something definitely to keep in mind if you're looking into that um now the other type of effects we could maybe talk about too a little bit. Uh, I don't really play with these anymore, but they were fun to learn with uh, wah and auto wah, just because it's fun to play funky stuff sometimes. And uh, dude, I'm
0: about to sell my crybaby. It's been sitting for 15
1: years. I don't think I've played it once. I'm gonna <laughs> finally decided to sell it. Yeah, I mean, I don't really, I don't really do too much with that style anymore, but it can just be really fun on bass to have like a wah effect type of thing going on. So
0: yeah, yeah it is fun.
1: And the nice thing about auto wah is that you can kind of set it like with attack and release times, like you would a compressor and it will just do all the work for you without having to bend your foot.
0: <laughs> right.
1: There's also synth effects that you can add. Bass synth is pretty cool. Like you can get some 80 sonic stuff and, um, of course, like, I would be remiss if we didn't talk about some of our favorite, like, emulations. I know, like, Neural DSP makes a couple plugins that just sound killer on bass. Uh, but Native Instruments has a few, and there's there's a couple others out there, too, that, like, just sound really good on bass. Uh And lastly, um I guess we'll talk about amps here, too. Like, they're probably more important than the pedals that you're using but we're just going down in order of the chain here so the main two categories i guess we have solid state and tube amps and you talked about that a lot more back in episode 13 um as far as the even order harmonics and the odd order harmonic scale like i didn't even know that that was a thing or that make up the difference between solid state yeah I don't know. You're you're telling me that, and I'm not sure. I I've, I don't remember saying <laughs> it's possible. Anyway, yeah, you did, go on. You you definitely did. I mean, that was more the, just kind of the technical of like what it is that they're doing. I don't understand okay. what that means. I just know. <laughs> I just know that I prefer the sound of tube amps because they just have this warmth to them. They sound awesome. But I will say that solid state's getting very good to emulating what. Um, a tube damped can do like I have my m nine carbine that I have is a nine hundred watt uh tubed base amp head that cost me it was like twenty five hundred dollars pretty expensive, and I also have a solid state mesa boogie um subway eight hundred plus is the model it's an eight hundred watt solid state amp head that only weighs five pounds uh it's super easy to lug around i think only cost me like 800 bucks and it sounds like 95% is good really it's really really close so wow
0: i know for like for guitar amps solid state y- y amps sound great clean usually you can get really good clean tones out of them the beef people have with them is like the distortion tends to be a little kind of brittle and harsh it's mm-hmm. kind of like the same beef people have with amp modeling, right? Like especially before amp modeling got as good as it is today. But yeah, tube amps give you a couple of nice characteristics. One is like, it's kind of like the digital versus analog discussion where like with a tube amp, you can feed, the hotter the signal you're feeding into the amp, the more it starts to break up and it's kind of a gradual breakup. So you can get like, like you were talking about, a little Mm. bit of breakup and a little bit of warmth, everything to like, gnarly gritty breakup that sounds kind of really warm and organic whereas with solid state amps typically it's like on or off like you're either clean or you're distorted and the distortion can be a little harsh or brittle sometimes so that's the beef people have with them but like you said I mean they're first of all they're way lighter
1: yeah uh, second way of all, lighter.
0: they're more more affordable um and also less maintenance like tubes maintenance. go bad they blow out you got to replace them yeah so there's there's compelling reasons for both um and, and I didn't realize that um so is that is that solid state Mesa Boogie you have is that like intended to is that that's the intention of the design is to get close to like a tube sound then be more affordable
1: I don't think so I think it's just to be affordable but the nice thing with um bass is that I'm really not looking for like a a broken up bass tone coming from my amp, like the way I'd normally right. dial in my tubed amp is. You're going shit. into a clean amp anyway, and you're getting yeah, a
0: distortion from the from the dark glass. Yeah,
1: exactly. So okay, I guess you could get away with solid solid state amps a lot more on that bass. That makes sense,
0: and we we talked about that on the gain staging episode where like. If you do want distortion, it's good to pick maybe one or maybe maximum two stages to get that distortion from. And so like on my guitar rig, which I did this on you know, episode 32 uh, when you were on vacation enjoying the, the great outdoors, <laughs> I found that with that setup that I wanted all of my distortion to come or I, I would say I used two stages. I wanted most of my distortion to come from the power amp of the tube amp. And a little bit from the preamp, and I didn't. And my signal going into the amp was completely clean and unboosted. Uh, And that's just the decision I made based on how my that amp sounded with my guitar. And you're saying you're kind of doing the opposite, where you're preferring to get your distortion from the pedal gain stage and then go into a clean amp, which is yeah, another another way of doing it.
1: Yeah, you know, and and I'm thinking out loud a little bit here too, but I think the reason it works like that better on bass is that. Bass distortion is kind of like stealing, stealing a note from the guitar player's, like handbook. Like whoever made that, <laughs> whoever made that dark glass pedal, was innovative and brilliant. They were like, okay, so all of these albums, we get this gritty bass tone by reamping, and we'll talk about this in the next episode. But we get this gritty bass overdrive from reamping our bass DI through a guitar amp and micing that up. But what if mm. we could capture that in a pedal and emulate yes. that?
0: And, and that's a great point because that's what you don't get with your amp. Like if you if you get distortion from your amp in your setup, you have no choice. There's no blend knob. You have no choice but to distort the whole sp- bass frequency spectrum or spectrum, uh, yeah, frequency spectrum. Whereas with the dark glass, you get that option of still blending in the clean lows. And so that makes sense while you're doing it that way. Yeah. Yeah. So... Yeah, cool. That's awesome. I never thought about it that way, but that actually that makes a ton of sense to me. I was always wondering how, because I know from a mixing standpoint, from mixing a lot of heavy bass, exactly like you said, there's like that reamp component to it, and I was always wondering how people did that in live setup. So uh, good. I learned a lot.
1: <laughs> awesome, awesome. So I only have a couple more notes here. Um, cool. And so you might be asking yourself, okay, I'm looking for an amp. What what do I buy? I recommend going to a guitar shop and take either your bass with you or the same model of bass and just plug into some different amps and just see what they sound like. Because for me, the choice to go with Mesa had to do with uh, Ernie Ball Stingrays that I play. They tend to sound pretty bright. And what I like about Mesa is it kind of helps to tame and control that high end without it sounding Mm. too harsh or bright, which is kind of, My problem with uh, going through an Ampeg rig, like nothing wrong with Ampegs, but I think Ampegs tend to be bright anyways. And so Mm. adding that brightness, and there's a lot of bass players that do the whole um, Stingray through an Ampeg, and that's fine if they like that, but I just don't like the highs to be that punchy. And so for me, it was just kind of a perfect marriage of the two. And I think if you're playing a different kind of bass, you might not like the mesa for different reasons
0: like i always get a kick out of reading forums when people are like oh my "Gosh, use these amp settings six eight <laughs> seven I'm like what are you talking about you there's <laughs> no context for it it doesn't mean anything so oh, that's so yeah, funny you, yeah trying it out is, is a nice especially if it's gonna if you're thinking about making a bigger investment uh, most places will let you you know bring your instrument and actually plug in and try it and i think that's huge
1: Yeah. Another thing too, like you really don't need to go overboard with the wattage. Like the wattage is your power. It's how much output your amp head can do. And so I have two, I have two heads. One is 900 Watts and the other is 800 Watts. And it is beyond way too much power. That's a lot of power. Yeah. It's so (laughs) much power. Like I was up at, I played one gig at, um, PPG Paints Arena, I couldn't remember the name because they changed the name so many times, but it's the arena where the Penguins hockey team plays. Oh, nice. And so like huge arena gig, you know, front house is way out of there, and I'm like, oh, now I could finally crank up my amp and see what this baby can do. And I didn't even get to halfway, and the front of house guys are like, turn the bass down, it's too loud. <laughs> That's <laughs> and I,
0: awesome.
1: And I was like, I'm not even at halfway, so I don't know what venue that, that base was made for, but that's insane. Wait, they they didn't have they didn't have your rig mic'd up at all? No, they had it mic'd up, but they were just saying my stage volume was overpowering the mains.
0: Oh my god. <laughs> that's awesome.
1: <laughs> I mean, even 500 watts might be too much, but like that's the m- most you would ever need from a bass.
0: Well, I, yeah, I've been saying for um, I said it last episode too. I'm I'm a big fan of these mini heads now uh, for guitars. Mm. Because you can get really good, they're small tube amps, so you can get really good sound. Like uh, you know, you can get some of them have a, a power switch that you can get like uh what is it? One like one watt or five watts or fifteen watts or whatever, you can have these different switchable options. Honestly, there's still plenty fle- freaking loud for small venues. Oh, and yeah. if you get into anything bigger, bigger venues will typically mic up your amp anyway. So uh, they're really affordable. They're small amps, so you can get, you can give yourself, you know, a couple different options instead of investing
1: in like one giant Marshall head. So I'm a big fan of that. All right. So last thing, I'm gonna drop some, I'm gonna drop some big, revelatory news. Uh, that I found out by going through some tone stuff this this past weekend, and this will lead into. Next week's follow-up or whenever we do the part two of this episode. So should I drum roll? What's what's this big announcement? Oh oh, Just wait for it. So I uh, I recorded um, My bass for a song that um, One of the artists that I've worked with uh, over the past couple of years She's getting ready to release a new um, a new single and she asked if I would play bass on it I said yeah, sure. I'll do it. So I took this opportunity to mic up my bass in like every possible which way. So I took a DI, I took a direct out of my amp head and reamped that through, um, through a plug-in cab emulation, which was really cool. Um, I mic'd up my cabinet to get a whole bunch of speaker positions and locations and combinations. And I gotta say... I really, when it comes down to it at the end of the day, I kind of prefer the the D-i tone going through the Neural DSP plugins as much as anything else. What? Really? So at least whenever, maybe we're not quite there on guitar yet, but I, I feel confident enough to say that we are to the point where you don't even need to bring your amp to the recording studio anymore. We got plugins that are good enough that sound probably as good or better than your rig. Oh my God.
0: Can't wait. I can't wait to hear these tones because that is, that's huge. I mean, that's a huge claim.
1: It's it's equally awesome and so disappointing. It's just disappointing that I've spent so much money on my bass rig and now we have like plugins that cost maybe a little bit over $100 that can replicate something just as good. <laughs> So you'll have to tune in next time to the DIY Recording Guys to to hear some of those examples and hear us talk more about, so we talked about dialing in a, a bass tone today, but next time we're going to talk about capturing that dialed-in tone. Until then, check yourselves before you wreck yourself. Have a good one.
0: If you're enjoying the podcast, take a minute to leave a rating wherever you like to listen to it, or share it with your friends on social media. Also, Benjamin and I are working engineers, and we love helping people turn ideas into finished productions. So if you're interested in working with one of us, or just want to discuss a project you're working on, reach out. You can find my work at calmfrogrecording.com, get me on Instagram at calmfrogrecording, or shoot me an email, vk at calmfrogrecording.com and you can check Benjamin's workout at dreamloudstudio.com hit him up on Instagram at dreamloudstudio or by email ben at dreamloudstudio.com and finally join our Facebook group to engage with a whole group of friendly like-minded people who are interested in DIY recording just search for DIY Recording Guys on Facebook thank you so much for listening and for your continued support I'll see you next week